bit of a spike, but not over, you know. No, it, and nothing to get as long as people behave themselves, yeah, that can go down in yeah five days. So yep. you just want people to behave themselves. Yeah. Hey, thank you for that awesome sermon. Well, you're welcome. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for coming down. And Absolutely. It's been my pleasure. Appreciate it. And children. Give your hands. Thanks be to God. Cleanse my lips, O Lord, and purify my heart, and proclaim your holy gospel. Alleluia, alleluia. You are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of the netherworld shall not prevail against it. Alleluia, alleluia. The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Matthew. Jesus went into the region of Caesarea Philippi, and he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter said in reply, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus said to him in reply, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my heavenly Father. And so I say to you, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of the netherworld shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly ordered his disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. The Gospel of the Lord. Well, it's good to be back with you. It's been a, quite a few months since I've been in both um, Atkinson and Stewart, so I'm glad to be back with you. 
You're Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. The gates of the netherworld shall not prevail against it. The passage from Matthew that we read today is a passage that's used to defend and define the doctrine of papal infallibility. This is one of the most misunderstood teachings of the church. And while I could write this off as being strictly academic and kind of boring and an irrelevant point, which as I was preparing for this week, I did at first and I didn't want to preach on that. And then throughout the week I had at least two people come up to me and have conversations that misunderstood this very topic. Means of, Father, what if the Pope was a complete scoundrel? Is he still infallible? Or if the Pope says it is, can he just change teachings? And if we misunderstand what this teaching is, it can lead to much anxiety. And it can seem that we trust a man instead of God, a man instead of the Holy Spirit. However, if I properly understand this, this is the reason I think it's a good thing to preach on, because it's very applicable to our times. For myself, understanding this gives me a great source of comfort and in peace. So let me pose this, and I'll draw it out a little bit. The infallibility of the Pope has much more to do with the infallibility of the Holy Spirit than it has to do with the Pope. So bear with me, I'll do a little bit of a history lesson. I think it's been a while since I've done a teaching homily, perhaps six months here, but it's also been six months since I've done a homily here, so that was funny. Papal infallibility was defined at the First Vatican Council in 1870. Now, it's always existed since the moment that Jesus proclaimed it to Peter, as we heard in Matthew's Gospel. But the church had no need to define it until it was challenged. And so, in the First Vatican Council in 1870, it was defined. And the definition is this, that the Roman pontiff head of the College of Bishops enjoys this infallibility in virtue of his office when his supreme pastor and teacher of the faithful who confirms his brethren in the faith. He proclaims by a definitive act a doctrine pertaining to faith or morals. The infallibility promised to the church is also present in the body of the bishops when together with Peter's successor, they exercise the supreme magisterium, above all an ecumenical council, when the church through its supreme magisterium proposes a doctrine for belief as being divinely revealed and as the teaching of Christ, the definitions must be adhered to with obedience of faith. That's a big chunk there. But to simplify it, 
basically what it says is that when the Pope is teaching something to us about our faith, what we believe, and morals, how we're to put that into practice in our lives, and claims that it has been revealed by Christ, he will not be in error. It's actually only been used twice since 1870. Both times have to do with Mary. The first was Pope Pius IX in the Doctrine of the Immaculate Conception. And then the second was Pope Pius XII, 1950, with the Assumption of Mary. These were two doctrines that we've believed for the entirety of the church but didn't really need to be defined until they were challenged. And they started being challenged around the 18th century. We started seeing big challenges to it. If we look a little deeper in a historical context about what was going on in 1870, right? the world itself is having upheaval in every direction. Just fin we had the French Revolution earlier in the century. Right? We have every world power being overthrown. And minus the American Revolution, most of those upheavals of power that claimed to be for freedom ended up with dictatorship with absolute power of one man. And the church stood strongly against this. Strongly against the fact that we couldn't entrust the freedom of people to one person. And so it would be completely insane if after that whole century happened, for all the bishops of the church to gather together knowing what had happened in the world and proclaim that a pope had absolute power. That's not what they were trying to teach. Yeah, I think that's kind of what we understand sometimes when we think about the pope being infallible. Right? If the pope says two plus two equals five, then it's true, right? No. Right? If the Pope were to say Jesus Christ is not the Son of God, it would not be tr become true. He'd be contradicting the faith. If the Pope were to teach that something that became moral, that was always believed to be immoral, it would not be true. How it's defined is that when the Pope makes this in communion with the bishops, in communion with the teaching of the church, he cannot be an heir. That should give me great comfort. Right? We live in a world that it seems that one day to the next, What's considered moral or immoral can change. 
when one world leader changes to another, what's considered right or wrong in a country changes. But when the church stands true on the foundation of Jesus Christ, when Jesus said, you're Peter and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail, that that will not change. That we know what we have to do for salvation. That we know who Jesus Christ is. In my faith that this is true, that the Holy Spirit will guide the Holy Father and will protect him against error, actually is in the fact that we've, in the history of the church, in the 2,000 years of the church, have had some really, really, really bad popes sometimes. Now, we're blessed in our age. I think most, yeah, everyone in this church has never seen a bad pope. In fact, every pope that we've seen in this church, there's arguments that each and every one of them should be saints. Three of them are Paul VI, John XXIII, John Paul II. So we're blessed that we've had that in our own life. But in the history of the church, we've had popes that would make Hollywood look like saints. And yet through that, through all of that, the deposit of the faith, the moral teaching of the church has remained constant and has not changed. That should give me great faith great comfort. Now, of course, practices can change, right? The language we say the Mass in, but that's not something that's a matter of what we believe or how we should act. I'll leave you, lastly, with this image. In St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, there's a statue at the front of the church of the chair of Peter. Yes, it's actually a statue of a chair. Holding the chair up, it's a big bronze chair, holding it up are the early popes of the church. And if you look closely at the statue, you'll notice that they're only using a single finger to hold up the chair. And that finger's barely touching. Behind that chair is a window that I think all over the world has at least seen in images. It's the Holy Spirit. It's in the form of a dove, a big, beautiful window. And it's actually part of this full work of art. And so you look closer at the chair and you realize that it is not the popes that are holding it up but it's actually the wings of the dove of the Holy Spirit that hold up the chair of Peter. 
It's not the man who we trust. It's the guidance of a fallible man by an infallible Holy Spirit. That's the point, right? That as rocky as our world may be, as changing as our world can be, as the opening prayer said, as uncertain as the world may be, we can entrust where true happiness is found, true peace is found in Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit's made this promise that when it comes to our faith, when it comes to our morals, when it comes to our guidance in this, the gates of hell will not prevail. Our very salvation rests in this. And so we thank God for Peter. We thank God for the grace of his Holy Spirit and for his mercy and his grace to us.